So we are continuing our systematic theology, and in particular, our study on the doctrine of God. And we have come to my final lesson in this series. So over the last few weeks, we have gone over the communicable attributes of God. And today, we're going to be finishing up by talking about two of his communicable attributes, his goodness and his truth. Now, just by way of review, you know, when we talk about communicable attributes, what we're talking about are those attributes of God which bear some resemblance or analogy with us. Another way for me to put this is by way of contrasting that with what were those incommunicable attributes. If you remember, the incommunicable attributes are those attributes of God which bear no resemblance with us. Or in other words, they are those attributes that distinguish God as God. Whereas the communicable attributes demonstrate to us that we are made in his image, although still distinct from him. So within those incommunicable or those communicable attributes, we have looked at a couple over the last couple of weeks. His knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his sovereignty, his will, his holiness, and his justice. And on this Lord's Day, what we will do is we will take a look at two categories as we see it in the Shorter Catechism, question four. His goodness and his truth. And I say categories because... As we'll see with goodness, there are actually several attributes that we'll be looking at within that category itself. So now with that being said, within that first category of goodness, there are five attributes that we will be taking a look at today. His goodness, his long-sufferingness, his love, his mercy, and his grace. Now within all of these attributes, these communicable attributes, there are some that God directs towards all his creatures and all his creation, his goodness and his long sufferingness. And then there are those attributes that God directs towards his elect, his love, his mercy and his grace. So let's take a look at first those attributes that God directs towards all his creation. Right. First, looking at his goodness. So what do we mean when we say goodness? What is that? By goodness, what we mean is that perfection of God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. So last week we talked about the holiness of God. And if you remember with God's holiness, that magnified his transcendence over all of creation. Well, if God's holiness magnified his transcendence, then his goodness is what magnifies his condescension towards his creation. See, because God is good, he manifests that in dealing bountifully with all his creation. Psalm 145 verse nine tells us, the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. We see in Matthew chapter five, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. So we see in this particular passage the fact of the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. They both receive the rain to provide food for them. They both have the sun rise and set on them. 
So God is indeed good in that sense, in that he deals bountifully with all of creation. James 1 verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing comes from God. Even though God's goodness is extended towards all of creation, really and truly it is only the believer that acknowledges the fact that it is God who gives those good things. If you think about it, I want you to think about basically anyone that you know who is not a Christian and something good has happened to them. They don't acknowledge God. They don't say, thank the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. They don't say, thank Jesus Christ. No. They say, oh, I mean, that was great luck. Or it's good, now, you know, you know, it looks like fortune was on my side. Or they'll thank some other God. Only the believer truly acknowledges the fact that whatever good we receive comes from the hand of a good God itself. So we don't deny that God extends his goodness towards all creation, but what we do acknowledge is not all of creation acknowledges that fact, that it has come from God. The second attribute that God directs towards all his creation is God being long-suffering. Now, as we all know, the wages for sin is death. As we also know, not everyone will embrace the gospel message of salvation. So why haven't those who rejected the gospel already died being as they've rejected the gospel? Well, this speaks to God's long-suffering nature. Now, when we say God is long-suffering, what we mean is God's goodness manifested in patience towards those who deserve punishment. God is patient towards all those who deserve punishment and will eventually at some point receive punishment. Numbers 14 verse 18 tells us, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And then we also have in Nahum 1 verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So if you notice in both of these verses here, we read that God is slow to anger. But at the same time, we also see that it says that he will by no means clear the guilty itself. So those who have not embraced the gospel will receive their punishment, although that punishment has not already taken place itself. Thanks to the fact that God is long-suffering. In many, if not in most instances, God does not immediately deal with sin as it deserves to be dealt with. Well, why is that? Why is it that God doesn't immediately deal with sin and deal with the guilty? Why does he let them string along only for them to eventually be eternally punished? I think a good way to really consider this or, or answer this is by looking to a passage in the book of Romans, chapter 9. 
verses 22 to 23, where Paul writes, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for the destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So in other words, in order for us, the elect of God, to truly know and appreciate the magnitude and fullness of God's grace and mercy towards us, he endures with those who aren't. Oftentimes, you know, we tend to forget the fact that, you know, the grace that we receive is undeserved. We may get a little arrogant, maybe even start to sound a little pharisaical in our prayers. God, I think that I am not like one of those sinners. So in order for us to not forget the fact that we are recipients of God's unmerited favor, God deals patiently, oftentimes, with the reprobate for us to see their ultimate demise and acknowledge if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I. John Calvin puts it in this way. It is the second reason which manifests the glory of God in the destruction of the reprobate. Because the greatness of divine mercy towards the elect is hereby made more clear, hereby more clearly made. For how do they differ from them except that they are delivered by the Lord from the same gulf of destruction? And this by no merit of their own, but through his gratuitous kindness. It cannot then be, but that infinite mercy of God towards the elect must appear increasingly worthy of praise when we see how miserable are all they who escape not his wrath. End quote. So I'm not going to sit here and say that that's, you know, the sole reason why God is long suffering, but that is certainly something to consider and think about. Is that fact and that reality? So we've talked about those attributes that God directs towards all creation. What about those attributes that God directs specifically towards his chosen, the elect? There are three that we'll be taking a look at. God's love, his mercy, and his grace. Now, by love, what we mean is this. That perfection of God by which he is eternally moved to self-communication. Or to put another way, love is God's goodness revealed in self-communication. Now, what do we mean by this? I'll do my best to try to explain. So, you know, we, we are stained by sin. And because of the fact that we are stained by sin, we can't in ourselves display anything pleasurable to God. When God looks at us, what he sees are creatures who deserve punishment and destruction. He can't look upon us, upon our sin and the sinner with joy. Even those acts, like I mentioned last week, that we think as righteous, God sees as filthy. So in order to derive any pleasure or joy from us, he must contemplate his perfection in us. So God communicates some of his self in us. Louis Burkhoff, in his Systematic Theology, puts it in this way. Since God is absolutely good in himself, his love cannot find complete satisfaction in any object that falls short of absolute perfection. He loves his rational creatures for his own sake, 
or to express it otherwise, he loves in them himself, his virtues, his works, and his gifts, end quote. Now within this attribute of love, we have two essential elements, his mercy and his grace. By mercy, what we mean is this, God's love shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of what they truly deserve. Don't forget, every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, every single person deserves to be punished for that. But yet God, in his love, chooses not to punish some, those he has set his love on. He does not give them what they deserve. Good example of this is in the book of Psalm, Psalm 106, verses 34 to 46. I'll read, and I want you to pay attention, because what we're going to notice here is Israel's sin and how God responds. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices, and they played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hands of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank, sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. That's his mercy. And he also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. So we see in this passage, God extending his mercy towards his covenant people, Israel. And then we also see in Micah chapter seven, verse eight, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Now, mercy is different from long-suffering. You know, I mentioned long-suffering, and I think it's important because sometimes people kind of confuse the two. Mercy is different from that, because when we talk about God being long-suffering, what we mean is that he doesn't immediately deal or punish the sinner itself. He does eventually punish them, but not immediately. Whereas with mercy, what we're saying is that God is not inflicting the punishment that the sinner deserves. And also, long-suffering applies to every single person, whereas God chooses whom he will be merciful to. In Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, we see Paul writing, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So mercy is not something that he's given to all people. 
Along that same vein, we have grace, God's grace. And by that, what we mean is the unmerited love of God to those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. So if God's mercy was what ensured that we were not punished as we deserved, then God's grace is God giving unto us love that we do not deserve. And that grace that we're talking about in particular is referring to our redemption, to our salvation. A good example of that is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, starting in verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopt to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of, his, of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So we see here that our redemption, our salvation, is a result of God's love and his grace towards us. We also see in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, but when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon, who he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we see in this passage. The same thing, the fact of our justification being a result of God's grace. Now, we've already seen that God is good to all. To those whom he has elected, God grants them grace by loving them, granting them salvation. And nothing inherent in the Christian can be claimed as the reason why salvation was given to them. It was only through the unmerited love of God that the Christian has received that spiritual blessing. So as I'm sure you can see, especially um, when I read Titus 3, 4 through 7, mercy and grace do go hand in hand. You know, another great example of that is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 where we see Paul writing, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he had, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us 
in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we see in this entire passage the fact of God's love, the fact that he was rich in mercy and set his love on us, and he saved us by through faith, well, by grace, through faith itself. So we see the connection between God's love, his mercy, and his grace, all necessary for our redemption, for our salvation. So now, this brings us to the next point that I want to bring up. Why is it that we say that these attributes are only directed towards the elect, whereas the first two that I mentioned, his goodness and his long-suffering, is directed towards all? That seems a little controversial to some, I guess. Well, I want you to think about what I've just talked about as it pertains to God's love, his mercy, and his grace. They all carry with them a redemptive element in that. And I want you to think about this. What elect, what reprobate can claim that they do not receive the punishment that they deserve? Eventually, at, at best, they may benefit from God being long-suffering, but nobody that is not elect can claim that they won't be punished for their sins. God is only merciful towards the elect. What reprobate can claim to receive God's grace? At best, they may receive some of his goodness, but definitely not his grace. Definitely not redemption itself. Which is why at this church, we don't, you know, we don't like the term or the phraseology common grace. Because grace is not common. It's particular. His goodness, on the other hand, is indeed what's common. Even with God's love, when you see the scriptures, when you read the scriptures, you see that it is directed particularly towards the elect. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, I'll read for you. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we see here in this passage, it being mentioned the fact of God setting his love on his covenant people itself. He chose to love them. Now, obviously, I understand the, you know, the weight of what I'm saying. But ultimately, you know, my point in bringing this up is that these specific attributes that we're talking about, his love, his mercy, and his grace, See, in the Bible, carries way much more potency and power than what many in the modern church realizes. See, God's love isn't just a love that just feels good, but does nothing to have a sinner escape eternal punishment. God's mercy isn't just one that leaves a sinner still guilty before him. 
God's grace isn't one that leaves a person without justification. That's my point. God's love, his mercy, and his grace being set on a sinner carries with it redemptive benefits. And us saying that only the elect receives it highlights the reality of that fact. So thus, only those who God has chosen receives or gets the direct benefit of these attributes. The final attribute that we'll be looking at is the attribute of truth or veracity. And by that, what we mean is that perfection of his being by virtue of which he fully answers to the idea of the Godhead is perfectly reliable in his salvation and sees things as they really are. So now when we talk about this attribute of truth as it relates to God, there are three different aspects that we're dealing with. Truth from a metaphysical standpoint, truth from a rational, logical standpoint, or truth and truth from an ethical standpoint. So when we say that God is true from a metaphysical standpoint, and what we are acknowledging is that he is the only true and living God. There is no other God except him. And since he is the true God, what that means is every other God is a false God. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 11 says this, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusion because it is wood cut from a forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. These are the idols, the false idols. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Upfaz, the work of a craftsman, and the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting God. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. So every God that isn't the one true God is a fake God, is a false God. Only God is true. Now, when we say that God is true from a rational standpoint, what we mean is that there is no inherent contradiction in his understanding or what he declares. So we can fully understand what God means when he speaks. See, when God told Adam to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we don't have to second guess the meaning of that. We don't have to think or assume that God meant something completely different from what we heard or what we read. 
Now, this is very important to understand because if we deny this and say that there is not a univocal understanding in God's communication to us, or just another way of putting it, saying that what God communicates to us means the same thing to him as it does to us, then we can't know anything about God through his revelation. Everything would be a mystery. So we acknowledge the fact that God is true from that standpoint because we can understand what he tells us. There is no ambiguity or, or, or lack of clarity. And the last is from an ethical standpoint. You know, when we, got, when we say that God is true ethically, what we mean is that he does not lie. What he says is indeed true. God speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There is no ambiguity here. So we can trust what God tells us when he speaks to us. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not, will he not make good? See, this aspect speaks to us being able to trust what God says. We don't need to second guess the statements that are given to us. And in particular, I'm referring to God's promises. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. In Hebrews chapter 6 verses 17 through 18, we have the writer saying in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So because of the fact that God is true, we can trust what he tells us. We can trust his promises. Now, this is so important to truly grasp and understand. Because of the fact that God is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably true from a metaphysical, rational, and ethical standpoint, this ought to give us comfort when we read our Bible and we look at the promises of God. For example, as it pertains to our redemption, our salvation, you know, Jesus says this in the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Well, we believe that and we trust that because of the fact that God is true. If we could not trust what God told us, then this would mean nothing to us, and we would still not have any assurance of our salvation. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, if we trust that what God tells us through the Apostle Paul in this passage is reliable, then this ought to encourage us to know that God, who began the work, will complete it. And again, if his word was not reliable, we would have no assurance of our salvation. Even in the sacraments, baptism, and in particular, the Lord's Supper, you know, we 
un, you know, we take comfort in it because of the fact that God is true. You know, we take the Lord's Supper weekly not to attest our faithfulness, but to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness in keeping and sustaining us. We are reminded each time when we drink the bread and eat the wine that God died for us. See, in baptism, we're not attesting to what we did, but what God will do if we place our faith in him. We are looking to his promise. And if God was not true in what he said, what confidence would we have in the signs and seals? What comfort would you have in taking communion weekly if you didn't trust God's word? What solace would you find in being baptized if your baptism was dependent on you and not on God's faithfulness? And we still have one final enemy yet to be defeated, death. And we have confidence that death will be defeated because of the fact that God is true in what he says. See, what God tells us, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if God were a liar and not trustworthy, what confidence would we have that death has truly been defeated? All of God's promises are tied to this attribute of truth. And if we deny this attribute of God, we lose all confidence in any promise given to us for our comfort. So this attribute in particular is so important so as to provide us with the comfort that oftentimes we need. So to bring all of this to a close. So we spent the last six weeks talking about a very difficult doctrine, the doctrine of God. And thankfully, I think I made it through without being charged with propagating any old heresy or creating a new heresy. So I feel pretty good about myself. But all jokes aside, I can see how to some, you know, what we have just went through may seem to be too analytical, maybe not at all necessary. Why are we going to all these details in regards to God and his attributes? I mean, don't we worship God of our heart? Why are we doing all of this stuff here? But I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that you know, it is through our study of God and our understanding of him that we get what fuels our worship. You know, just like the more you study and understand your spouse, that actually helps to build and increase the love that you have for your spouse. So in the same way, the more that you study and understand God, does it help to build your love for him and increase the worship of him? I can tell you just within myself over the last few weeks, going over this has, has been immense for me. Fears and anxieties that I had the more that I studied God's attributes, it's melted, melted away. You know, and when it comes to a true and good study of these attributes, what it ought to do is build and shore up your faith in him and increase truly your awe of God. I mean, think about it. How could your faith not be built? when you truly grasp and understand the fact that God is faithful to keep his promise? How can you not look at God with awe when you understand the, mag the, 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 the transcendence and the magnitude of his holiness? You know, how can you not lift your hands in praise 
when you think about the fact that God set his love on you, the believer, and lovingly saved you and redeemed you by his grace. How can you not be humbled when you truly grasp God's omniscience and his wisdom? You know, Paul, after finishing or finishing the first part or section of the book of Romans in Romans chapter 11, he ended by praising God by writing a doxology. So all the theology that Paul wrote led him to praise God. And might I say, the more you study God, the more you understand God, what will happen is that will drive your praise of God. And my hope for all of you, you know, as you think about everything that I've talked about and in your own personal studies, when you think about the God who made you and takes care of you, that you would praise him all the more as you contemplate the God who is triune, the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, and his truth. May the study of God's most holy word and understanding of the one true and living God lead you to a deeper love, a deeper affection, and more intimate worship of this one true God. So with that being said, let's now rise to recite God's most holy word.